Hey, football freaks, and thanks for donning your quarterback pads and munching on the 70th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We, ahem, tackle sports movies from long ago on this channel, and we spoil them enough to make you puke. Uh, enough to make you puke, there, Homer. I'm the guy who should have been a teacher, even if only part-time, and who actually did once play tackle football without pads or a helmet. Idiot. Ryan Ellis. And here's the gazelle-like wide receiver who would never dump a beer up before finishing it. Chris DiGregorio. You nailed me in the gazelle description, that's for sure. Were you deeply bothered by that beer-dumping scene in the opening when we see Mark Wahlberg and his buddies go to watch the Eagles lose another football game in the 1975 season? It all depends on what kind of beer it was, because... As we both know, I'm a little bit of a craft beer snob as I get older in age. So if that was Coors Light being dumped on the seat, I say, have at it. <laughs> was that an homage to the Holy Ghost of the Philadelphia Eagles season that they were pouring one out to? The deceased season saying goodbye and respect? Was that what that was? That's good. I didn't think of that. I like that idea. My thinking with this was that he's not really a drinker. We don't really see him drink the whole movie, even though he's a bartender through a big part of the movie. I'm not saying he doesn't drink at all, but maybe his idea is, I don't really want this anyway. It was a bit for show. Maybe I'm reading that wrong, but it could be the pouring one out. There you go. Maybe you're right. Pouring one out for the loved ones that can't be there or something for whatever reason. You open up on the last game of the season and they're already all depressed and basically reading the last rites. I did enjoy the fact that they stopped people from leaving. Apparently there's one play left in a lost game in a lost season. Like, no, it ain't over. You ain't going anywhere. What if that guy's like, dude, I got to pick up my daughter from school or something in two... I guess it's a Sunday. I got to be somewhere, dude. No, you go sit down. <laughs> this is a leisure activity, sir. You may not leave until we tell you you can leave this leisure activity. Being a Philadelphia Eagles fan in this movie, at least in the 70s, it seems like, was maybe the least leisurely leisure activity I can imagine. This is true. <laughs> a lot of stress involved, apparently, and a lot of angst. I'm a huge sports fan, obviously. We've talked about that at various points in the podcast. But I always roll my eyes at the people that define themselves through their sports teams. But in the context of 1970s Rust Belt America and the collapse of some of the manufacturing and the strikes and stuff, you can understand how that one shining light illuminates your entire life when you don't have much else. And that's the whole underlying premise of this movie. A lot of the buildup and the premise of this movie, they just did right off the bat to get that tone down, I thought. That's true. Miracles like that. I'm just going to do one of these real quick. <laughs> Hard in the Foley one. Cinderella Man also is a movie, if we ever cover that, that has that theme that Jim Braddock represents all the downtrodden. Yep. Okay, you just opened your beer. What are you drinking there? Speaking of beers, by the way. Perfectly in keeping with a movie that focuses on the lower working class folks of 1970s Rust Belt America, like I just said, what would be more fitting than a dry hopped sour ale, raspberry, bumbleberry blend, 1970s America in a can, maybe. Blue collar. Blue collar. I should have had a beer, but I'm drinking Crown Royal and Coke Zero. Also, so blue collar. <laughs> and so American. <laughs> I'm a true Canadian. Well, before I ask you what you think of this movie, which was your first time ever seeing it, and my second, I haven't seen it in a long time, I'll set it up. 
So Wide World of Kickoffs, this is a special teams movie, was released 15 years ago by Disney on August 25th, 2006. It didn't lose money, but it didn't rake it in either. It cost $40 million to make and only made about $58 million worldwide, which is a bit of a surprise. Mark Wahlberg, Elizabeth Banks, Greg Kinnear. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers, though, are very good. 72% of critics liked it, 6.5 out of 10 as the average, and 73% of audiences, so both fresh tomatoes. And it was 55th at the box office in 2006. Talladega Nights, which we covered years ago, was 12th. Rocky Balboa was 38th. And then also Glory Road, which Disney released in January of that same year. And I've been talking this one up a lot to you because we're going to cover it in, I think, a month or so, leading up to what might be the final four, or what might not be the final four, but what should be in March. <laughs> but that wasn't a raging success either. A lot of Disney sports movies have been. All right, so that's the big buildup. What did you think in your first viewing of In... Vincible. Do you get it, Chris? Invincible. Wink, wink. Vince Papale. Wink. I actually liked it a lot. I don't know why I didn't see this in 2006. Because 2006 was right my heyday of seeing basically any movie that wasn't a rom-com that came into theaters. But when we were sort of chatting about watching this movie in advance of recording this, we both had the same misconception that Mark Wahlberg's character was a place kicker. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that we would both have that same misconception about the lead character. Disney, I don't think, did a terribly good job of promoting this movie in a way that really at least exemplified what it was all about. My only recollection of it was that in the ads of the time that Mark Wahlberg was an everyman, for sure, that I remembered, but that he became a kicker for a team at some point, and I didn't really know much else beyond that. I think more effective would have been for them to promote this as an updated Rudy story, because really, to me, that's what it was. It was like Rudy done well. Or Rocky, set in Philly, for one thing. I get that, too. I guess I went to Rudy because of the football connection, but you're right, there's the underdog Philly connection as well. But also with Rudy, I'll give you that credit, because he has the Rudy arc. Win or lose, he just wants to play. Yeah, exactly. And I think we understand definitely that Rudy's a beloved movie, I don't think either one of us are big fans of it. Rudy in that movie just comes across as a whiner. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna. And yeah, he works hard at stuff. There's an entitlement there. I think what this movie does so well is you've got the same kind of story. A guy who is a lifelong Eagles fan, a guy who comes from an underdog background and from a family and group of people around him who are all diehard Eagles fans. And he wants to play for the Eagles, but he doesn't ever express this sense of entitlement to do so just based on his fandom and love for it. It's always the sense that I'm not good enough, which I think is probably a more accurate portrayal of anything of the situation. One of the things I do wish it had done a better job of, just knowing a little bit about the real life Vince, he apparently always harbored that dream of playing for the Eagles. And I don't know how well this movie did at really giving us that sense of this being a dream of Vince's. It came about that there was an opportunity and he went for it with the encouragement of the people around him ultimately. And yeah, he says, I've loved the Eagles my whole life, but up until the point where he shows up at the tryout, you never really get the sense that deep down he wishes he could play for the Eagles. So I wish they'd push that angle a little bit more. I don't know if maybe you got a little bit more of that than I did. Well, he has the talent too. He's easily the best player of all of his friends when they play tackle football. I said in the intro that I did that when I was young. I was a young teenager, probably. My brother and I weren't close, but at one point I hung out with him in a nearby town where he lived. And we played football with his friends. And it was tackle. And they were bigger than me. And I remember at one point I caught a ball. I didn't get a lot of throws that day. And I could see a guy coming at me who just ran me over. No, no, I got (laughs) hammered. I don't remember being hurt, 
Maybe I got a concussion. Maybe that's why I'm a little messed up now. <laughs> it's like your origin story. I've been down this road, and to watch these guys do that, they're having fun. Nobody ever gets hurt, but that's nuts for grown-ups. And look at Wahlberg. He's Mark Wahlberg, so he is in boxer-level shape. We covered the fighter last year. He was basically in training around this point till the end of the decade to be ready for the fighter when that ever would happen. Plus, he had done The Departed the same year as this, where he probably didn't have to be in great shape, but was anyway. He's Mark Wahlberg, so he was always in good shape. But none of them are small, necessarily. None of them look like they're puny little wimps. And Mark Wahlberg especially looks like he can bowl over a truck. And they're hammering each other with these tackles. At the end, when he plays with his friends just for fun in the rain game, yeah, I'm watching that thinking, you should be doing that probably anyway, because it's unsafe. All of you shouldn't be. But now you're playing Sandlot contact football. And you have a contract with a professional team. You have responsibilities. Vince, what are you doing? So let me get back to the whole dream thing with Vince. Because that's my nutshell. We get to see maybe seconds of the real Vince at the end in footage. Yeah. That's more exciting than 105 minutes of Mark Wahlberg. I don't dislike this movie. I think it's a solid film. It's a classic Disney film, actually, in the sport genre. They've done a lot of good ones. The kids' ones, not so good. But the adult ones, like Glory Road, like this one, like Miracle, which I love so much, they do them quite well. The football action's pretty good. Mark Wahlberg's not bad, but man, is he dour. And the little bit we see of Vince Papali, I would have loved to have seen, maybe it would have been a little bit much, but 100 minutes of that guy. Not so much the, yeah, I'm really good. My life is taking a dump on me. My wife left and I'll play football and I won't stick around, but I will. And that's not Wahlberg's fault. Brad Gann wrote this, his first ever screenplay. Erickson Core directed it, shot it as well. He also shot... Fast and the Furious, which we covered, I think, last year. And the Point Break remake directed and shot that. Maybe it's on them. I don't know. But Wahlberg's character is so glum. And it's almost like Vince is dragged into this. And yeah, I guess I'll play pro football. Fine. When I have nothing else. So I like the movie, but that's my one big criticism with it. Yeah. And especially when you see the real Vince, who is such the life of the party from what you can tell in the rare footage of him that there is. There's not really much sense of from Mark Wahlberg's performance that Vince is terribly excited about this whole opportunity. Part of it is just Mark Wahlberg. And I kind of like him generally, as long as he's cast in the right parts, but he's always a low key guy. Every role he's in, even at his most bombastic, he's pretty low key. This takes it to a bit of an extreme. You're right. And my guess is that that's the director trying to convey the kind of downtrodden nature of Southside Philly in the seventies with all this downturn of manufacturing and recession and oil prices stuff all hitting American industry all at once. Another tie into Rocky, by the way, came out in 76. They set it in Philadelphia. They shot it in Philadelphia. That's when this movie set in 76. You get a similar sense of both movies when it comes to where the lead characters live and the very blue collar working class environment. And the saddest aspect of this movie, Mark Wahlberg's performance in life circumstances of Vince aside, it's the fact that these guys, by their own admission, they have so little sense of self-worth and self-identity that they live and die through their team. And while, like I said off the top, I can understand that more in those circumstances, it's still kind of sad. When all you've got is the bloody Philadelphia Eagles and that's it? To the point where one of Mark Wahlberg's own friends, they reconcile at the end and all, but at one point he says, you'll fail at your tryouts and you'll still be nothing. Dear Lord, man. I mean, everybody's got some value. You don't have to be a pro football player or 
a multimillionaire or something, you can still be a good human being and be a value to your friends, family, and community. You don't have to be defined by your bank account worth. Well, also, if he took his shot, that's all that really should matter. That's yeah. what Rocky wanted. Exactly. And once he made the team, he screws up early on, and it's almost like, you got one more chance, kid. But you're the one that had belief in him, Dick Vermeil, Coach Vermeil. Anyway, that's drama, I guess. But once he made the team, in a way, he succeeded right there because he got paid some kind of decent money and a dream was achieved just being there. That's the Rudy dream, just being there. So how could he possibly say that he didn't succeed the minute he got invited back by the coach personally? Probably not a real thing, but in this movie, Dick Vermeil walks up to his car. We don't see the scene where he says, I am going to invite you on this team. Instead, we see Wahlberg go to the bar and it looks like he finds out by watching on TV like they do. I think he knew and just played it cool with the guys. He did, yeah. But the way it's filmed, it almost looks like he finds it on TV like they do. But once that happened, just that alone is a dream that none of them could possibly achieve. But that guy, obviously, the friend, is jealous. I think that's what the Michael Rispoli character says later on, is that this guy is just behaving like an ass because he himself has nothing and no one. And he's scared that if Mark Wahlberg succeeds too much in this, he'll leave. And then there'll be like one less person in this guy's close circle of friends that he's left with. It is supposed to come from a place of fear. Whatever the character's name is, John or something, is behaving like an ass towards Vince. Johnny. Yeah, yeah, Johnny. The most supportive friend in the movie that's played by the guy whose name I always forget, but who's from things like Rescue Me, I think, and all over the place. You mean Michael Kelly who played Pete? No, the other guy, Tommy. Oh, Tommy, Kirk Acevedo. Yes, that's right, Kirk. Yeah, he's the guy that's always supported Vince throughout this. And even when he was trying to convince Vince to go for it, as you said, Mark Wahlberg's character throughout this is like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I'm never going to succeed, I'm nothing. He's the guy that says exactly the same thing. Even if you don't even make the team, just being out on the field, that's hallowed ground for us. So just being out there for the tryout for an hour is already a win. He's already succeeded beyond anybody's reasonable wildest dreams. That's one of the reasons why some of those reactions, I know they're played to really just illustrate how downtrodden everybody is, but it made me laugh a little bit. The opening gut shot when Wahlberg's character walks home and his wife is just gone and taken everything apparently which is such a dick move takes every <laughs> bit of furniture out of the house with her I mean come on leave the guy a chair for god's sakes something belonged to him if you gotta go you gotta go but be reasonable leaving the note I think that was actually pretty true to reality that his first wife did that I don't know if she walked out with everything but just disappeared and left a note basically saying you are nothing and will always be nothing dear god woman this poor guy is working two jobs he's trying to do whatever he can to make ends meet it's hard for everybody cut the guy some slack all because he decided to take an hour to go play some football with his friends at night what was he supposed to be doing pounding the pavement at like eight o'clock at night trying to find a job he's got two <laughs> He's a part-time teacher, too. You don't get to be a teacher. Maybe in the 70s it was easier, but you have to go through some schooling to be a teacher. You have to be somewhat accomplished. He just can't keep the job because they're cutting back. I think the reality of it was that Vince quit his teaching job because he wanted to join the World Football Association or some other new... World Football League. He played for the Philadelphia Bells for two years before this. That's one thing they don't say in the movie. He actually played semi-pro, or whatever you call that league, for two years before this. Then he played three years in the NFL for the actual Eagles, so they got that right. He played 41 games in three years. He caught one pass ever for 15 yards. As a receiver. The touchdown we see in the game wasn't, no, that was a fumble recovery. And they show that, I think, in the end credits, or maybe I saw it online, I forget now. But that was whistled down, and the touchdown didn't count in reality. In the movie, it does, because it's great drama and everything that he actually recovers and scores a touchdown. But he never actually scored a touchdown in reality on that play, and I don't think ever, period. 
But most of his career really was special teams, which yeah. football teams need. You can't all be stars. And he got to be the special teams captain for the Eagles in 1978. And Dick Vermeil was hired going into the 76 season. They had that right. He coached all of Vince's years. But they remained bad for two years under Vermeil. They were 4-10 and 10 in that 76 season, 5-9 and nine the next year, but then four straight years in the playoffs and a Super Bowl appearance in 1980. Vince wasn't there anymore, but Dick Vermeil led them to that. And, of course, the team won the Super Bowl in 2017, long after any of these people were around. But yeah. just as a bit of a note, because it's true, it's historically true, the Eagles did eventually win a Super Bowl. It took a long time. I may not have any more, but I once had an Eagles cap somewhere in my garage. <laughs> because when I was young, Why? I bought Blue Jays stuff. I was in the Red Sox as well. Kansas City Royals for some reason. Ugh. And also the Philadelphia Eagles. And I think it may be because of Randall Cunningham, oh, who may not have been a winner, but what specific. a talented quarterback he was in the late 80s, early 90s. I remember Cunningham when he played for Minnesota. I don't remember him with the Eagles. He was an Eagle first. I didn't really follow the NFL that closely. Still, now that I've passed on fantasy football. I don't really follow it anymore very much either. But yeah, I remember Cunningham back in the day. He was a good player. As far as Vince goes, you're right. They don't portray any of that. In fact, I think at various points they say he didn't even play football past high school or something beyond Sandlot football. So they made a point in this movie of fictionalizing just how inexperienced but talented Vince was just for the sake they of They lied drama. to us. I'm usually the first guy to say, just give us some reality. A lot of the movies try to go to like the nth degree of drama and ridiculousness to try to heighten that sense of whatever, accomplishment, triumph, whatever. And most of the time, I don't like it too much. In this case, I kind of understand. It's hard to get that sense of triumph and drama when you're like, hey, this guy's been a semi-pro for two years and Vermeil invites him to a tryout with some of his teammates and he made the team. Isn't that cool, guys? That doesn't play quite as well as every man makes Philadelphia Eagles on open tryout day. This is an example of a movie where they did fictionalize aspects of the lead character's life for dramatic effect. And I think they did it well. And you mentioned the ending sequence of this game where Vince does cause the fumble, retrieve the ball, and run it in basically the length of the field for a touchdown off a Philadelphia punt. And that is fiction, right? Because in reality, he did cause the fumble. And you're right, it got whistled down. And I had to look up why that was. And apparently it was the rules of the era did not allow a fumble recovery to be brought forward for forward yardage. So as soon as he got back to the line of scrimmage, it would have been whistled dead. Oh. Yeah, they scored on the subsequent play, but you're right. Vince had no actual touchdowns in his career, I don't believe. Leading up to it, though, in the movie's portrayal, I thought it was funny in his first year, when he's still barely respected by anybody, that the players listen to Vince on that punt when it's deep in their own end. He saw the Knuckles thing. The other guy told him. By the way, the guy who plays him, Stink Fisher. Wait, is that what? guy's name in the IMDb. No air quotes around Stink, or real quotes, just Stink Fisher plays Denny Franks. He's the one that tells him, my Knuckles are white. What does that mean? You're coming for me. And he sees that, and he audibles everybody, but they're going to listen to him? Now, he becomes special teams captain at some point. It was a couple years later. Maybe that's just trying to cram in the idea that he does become the leader of the special teams. And of course they listened to him then. But at that point, the movie portrayed he still wasn't very well liked by this team. They made a point up until then, basically at every opportunity to point out how much Vince wasn't liked or respected by the veterans on the team at that point. And that stink guy... <laughs> That moment when he says, check it out, my knuckles are white, my knuckles aren't white because my weight is forward or my weight is back, and this means that. And I'm telling you this not because I like you, but because I'm sick of watching you get your ass handed to you on every practice because you can't read what play is coming at you. 
I kind of like that because it's not suddenly, you know what, Rudy, you've worked so hard. I suddenly respect you and I love you and I'm going to help you, which listen, somebody can work hard enough as an underdog to endear themselves to you, even if you don't initially like them. I get that. But that universal acceptance in Rudy because of just how much he worked was annoying at a certain point, I guess. The one difference is that is college, which effectively is That's amateur. True. And this is the pros. That's fair as well. I thought it was just more true to life that this guy would help him out. Not because I suddenly love you, dude, but I can't watch you get your ass kicked every day, man. If you're going to go out there, at least <laughs> be smart about it. The response from Wahlberg is, oh, okay, thanks, man. Anything I can do for you? Elizabeth Banks' character left her giant yes. shirt behind. Yeah, get your giant shirt out of my closet. <laughs> That's cute. Going into this, I knew Wahlberg was in it, but I basically knew none of the other actors in this movie. And it's a good cast. But as soon as I saw Elizabeth Banks' name come up, I thought, oh, this is a movie that's going to appeal to Ryan for sure. Because I love know Banks. your Banks love. You're absolutely right in that. Elizabeth Banks is awesome for any number of reasons. And she's good in this. She doesn't have a ton to do, but she's good as the sports-loving love interest of Mark Wahlberg's character. You know why that works so well in this movie with her? And one of the reasons why I'm a gentle thumbs up on this, not a savage thumbs up, and certainly not a thumbs down. I might still rain some crap on you it. You haven't sprained your thumb trying to get it up so fast and hard? Oh. I will gently lift it with my other finger, my opposing finger, to make sure it's a thumb up. A semi-flaccid thumbs up. <laughs> yes. But the reason why I like it, one of the reasons why I like it, is that Elizabeth Banks and Mark Wahlberg have a believable romance. Yes. We've seen it in so many movies, sports movies, any kind of film, where two people connect, they're good-looking, they have some kind of chemistry, but that's enough in movies. They're supposed to be together, so they are. But this is a push-pull romance. It could have been smooth and easy, and they have sex on the first date, or they just connect on the first date, and sex is not even involved. Because this is a Disney movie. There's no swearing. There's no real violence other than football. There's no blood and guts. And we certainly don't see them go into the room and do anything. But I liked how he basically tells her, I can't focus on you because I have to focus on football, which is also fair. Yeah. And she's not that hurt by it, but you can tell she's hurt. And then they do connect later on. But I liked how there was a bit of a push-pull there. He pretty much doesn't deserve to be with her because she's the charm. She's the fun. She's Banks, so she's awesome. One of the things I've always loved about her is that, especially in certain roles, maybe not every role, seems to have a bit of a screw loose in a great way. By the way, I looked this up. She is just four days older than me. She'll be 47, four <laughs> days before I will. And I said to Bev that Mahershala Ali, I believe it is, is something like four or five days younger than me. So we all have birthdays in the same time frame. I have nothing else in common with these people except our birthdays. And the fact I like them both, but especially Banks. So I think their relationship is a huge part of what makes this movie work as well as it does, because it's a little bit different, not a ton different, but a little different than we've seen in other sports films. Sea Biscuit, we watched that a couple years ago, and she's in it. I don't think she's in any other sports movies, but those two now for us. And she's fine in that film, but she's a bit wasted. And she doesn't really belong with Jeff Bridges, which is a weird pairing in the first place. But here she's with somebody who she seems to make sense with. Wahlberg, though, even though I think he's fine in the role, and he's always pretty good in most things, it's not like he's usually miscast in the sense of him being bad, but he might be miscast in the sense that he's so short. Vince Papali was six foot two or something, and Wahlberg is barely taller than me, something like 5'8". He was 35 playing 30, although he does not look 35, but he was playing older than he should have been. They're always mocking the guy's age, too. And we talked about The Fighter already earlier in the podcast. Last year we did that. I didn't love that movie, and part of the reason why is because his family is so over the top. The acting is so big from all of them, and Wahlberg is almost so dour and dull. It was a good counter in that movie to what's going on with everyone else. And in this film, 
Everyone's tone is about the same. Banks certainly livens things up in that bar. And being a Giants fan, but not being a dick about it either. I'm from there, so I like them. I don't hate the Eagles. I just like the Giants better. Which is the reverse of a movie that I loaned to you, and we probably won't cover because you seem to hate it. But Big Fan, the Patton Oswalt movie, where he is obsessed <laughs> with the New York Giants. And in that one, we are with the Giants because we, well, maybe don't like him, but we're with his story. And they hate the Eagles. Now it's the other way around. We hate the Giants but we like the Eagles because we like Vince and we like his friends and family in that area. Listen, we can still do big fan. I don't have to love every movie we do. And I think we've seen that in some of the recent ones. Definitely. The Elizabeth Banks, Mark Wahlberg romance in this, they just did fairly solidly and well. How often have I ranted and complained about people seemingly trying to shoehorn romances into sports movies where it felt like it didn't fit. I don't know why to try to appeal to a female audience or something. I don't care how many romances you shoehorn into a movie, even like Invincible. You've got a cast of basically entirely men, except for Elizabeth Banks. And I can't remember the actress's name that plays Dick Vermeil's wife in this. She's a reasonably accomplished actor in her own right. I think she's got maybe three scenes in this movie. Paige Turco. She played April in those 90s Ninja Turtle flicks. She's also in The Game Plan, a rock movie, meaning Dwayne Johnson. So a sports film, we could cover it one day. I think the few scenes she has, though, she makes the movie better. Really? It doesn't hurt that she's good looking. But it's also because they made it work when she rallies for Vince. We see the scene where Dick wants to keep Vince, but all the other coaches want the veteran. Yeah. Carol's the one that says, oh, give Vince a chance. He's working so hard. It reminded me a little bit in Miracle, I'll bring it up again, which was two years before this movie, where Rizzo was the one that... Her Brooks wanted to cut, and he ends up being the captain of the team and scores the winning goal in the gold, well, not the gold medal game, as it turns out, but the game that got them, when well, they beat the Russians in yeah. Miracle. I think that's the same thing in this movie. Maybe it's a play on Miracle without it trying to be literally that. So I guess I appreciated that. And Paige Turco, I don't know, just has some spark and some spunk. I would like to see her and Kinnear have more scenes together. Exactly. There probably isn't room for it. The movie's pretty short, though. It's about an hour and 45 minutes long, which is pretty short for a biographical sports film. Usually when they are, like Miracle, they're well over two hours long or around two hours long and more of Paige Turco would have been fine with me. I think she's pretty good. I kind of appreciated the runtime in this, that it was as short as it was because I can appreciate what you're saying about Paige Turco's character in respect of that one scene where she does sit down with Dick Vermeil when he's trying to make that last cut decision around Holly or the other wide receiver that was in the mix. She basically quotes to him what Vermeil had said earlier about character. And that's, Oh, I'm not talking about the player. I'm talking about you, Dick. And that was the light bulb for Dick Vermeil. I thought that was a good moment for sure. But aside from that, I didn't really see that their scenes together did a whole heck of a lot for the movie, which is not me saying that I thought Paige Turco was bad. I just didn't think the screenwriters or the director gave her a whole lot to do outside of that one moment. But Elizabeth Banks did bring a realistic sense of, not of the romance itself is what I'm trying to get at, but of that relationship between the two of them. And for the reasons that I think you already cited, so I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. It felt more realistic than most anything we see in these kinds of sports movies, leaving aside the fact that Vince, in reality, didn't marry his wife until I think five years after he joined the Eagles. So it was a fictionalized romance for the purposes of the plot, but they did it well. They didn't overplay the importance of what Vince was experiencing with Janet in this movie. They played it for what it was. It was something that he was interested in and wanted to explore, but also understood was something that he would have to back burner if he wanted to take this once in a lifetime shot at the Eagles. And he was honest about it. And I think Elizabeth Banks' character was honest about her reactions to that in the way that you described already too. And they didn't blow it up into this huge subplot. They just kind of let it simmer in the background so that mm -hmm. it was there. 
it was meaningful, but it wasn't trying to go up against the main plot arc of the football team. And I kind of loved that they gave her character the opportunity to show up in Vince's seat to a Philadelphia Eagles game, wearing the Giants merch, basking in the hatred that the Philadelphia faithful were throwing at her. There are a few actors out there that are more qualified to pull off that scene and that performance than Elizabeth Banks. I think you've put it well. She's got a little bit of a visible screw loose in her performances often in a great way. And she demonstrates that in that Eagles game scene where she's just arms out, Messiah-esque, like, yeah, rain the popcorn down, people. I love it. <laughs> Give it all to me. And you could see Kirk Acevedo begging the crowd, please stop. She's with us. And then holding his head in his hands. Like, this is so embarrassing. We don't get that from her in Seabiscuit, really, I wouldn't say. Like I said, she has very little to do. And she doesn't have that same sort of snap. But this is the Banks I like. This is the Catch Me If You Can, very small role Banks, or some of the stuff in Zack and Miri make a porno. Something about her goes way beyond looks. She's just cool lady, and she's got this, yeah, bring it on world. I'm not angry at the world, but I'll fight back if I have to. Kind of attitude. With a smile on my face. One of the performances that I was really impressed with in a low-key way, because most of the performances in this are low-key, was the guy that played Vince's dad, Frank Papale. I don't Kevin know. Conway. Yeah. Not a guy that I'm familiar with and not a guy that gets a ton of screen time in this either, but the scenes that he does have, even if they are low key, I don't know if you had the same reaction to the scenes between he and Mark Wahlberg, but I got to admit some of the lines that Frank gave to Vince in this movie did kind of gut shot me a little bit. No tears, no salty discharge, but got me in the feels. He says at one point, you know, all the stories I told you about Van Buren's touchdown in 48, that touchdown got me through 30 years of working in that factory and through your mom's illnesses. In that one line, you get 30 years of drudgery and hard work and just sort of gritting it out and surviving in lower middle-class Philadelphia in the 70s. When he says to Vince later on, when Vince is like, ah, oh, dad, I'm not going to make the team, I don't think. And he says... Something like I said, it probably wouldn't happen doesn't mean I didn't ever believe. I was trying to be a realist, but deep down, I always believed you could accomplish anything, son, kind of thing. Dad, that's so beautiful. <laughs> I just wanted you to believe in me. He never overplayed anything. He let the lines be delivered subtly, and then he would just walk away. There was just something so concise and beautiful about those moments that I kind of thought it was very well done and touching. The heart-to-hearts with Pop are excellent, him being in the bar in the big game towards the end. Bring really it in the crew, game. yeah. You know what I actually just thought of as you were saying all that? And I don't have a problem with this, but when a basketball player, for example, will land a big shot, probably a three, and hold it up there, we've seen Michael Jordan do that in some of the classic videos. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not criticizing that. But that's a bit of showboating. Yeah. What Frank would do in the same situation would be finish the shot and quietly walk off when the timeout was called. And you'd never even notice that he made the shot, other than the fact you know he made the shot. Exactly. So there's nothing wrong with the other style of play or the other style of acting, the big grand type of scene. But sometimes you want the guy that's just completely low-key. You're right. There's a very touching moment with those guys a couple of different times, especially the one early on after Sharon's walked. He, by the way, the actor, played General LeMay. So Curtis all the way LeMay in 13 days, about six years before this. That's a good movie. That's mm. about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And he is... Not a good guy, the way they portray him in that film. He's done a lot of years of TV. But this is, along with 13 Days, a standout movie role. But look at the difference in those two roles. So yeah, you're right. He quietly, I wouldn't say steals the movie, but certainly improves it. 
But I thought what you were going to say a minute ago, even though I like Kevin Conway, Michael Raspoli. Yeah. Rounders, we love the movie, and he's good in the role. Obviously, it's written that way. But Grandma, a little of him goes a long way. The Sopranos, Richie Aprile. I haven't seen Sopranos in so long that I think I know which one he is, but I don't remember him all that much right now. I probably would if I saw it again. He's a lovable lug, and this is one of his more underrated, really good roles. I thought he was excellent in this film as the bar owner and the friend, and the realist, and also the supporter. Uh, Vince. Yeah, he plays Max, right? The bar owner. He's mm-hmm. the guy that gives Vince the bartending job when Vince is struggling for cash. He actually loans Vince some money at some point. But it's funny you mention Rounders because Rounders is a movie I've seen so many times and is, for all its faults, so dear to my heart that when I saw Michael Raspoli in this movie, and he is supposed to be a legit down-to-earth good guy and good friend to Vince... But every time something would happen, like he loans Vince the 200 bucks that Vince asked for to make rent after he's laid off from his teaching gig, and then later says, you can pay me back whenever, Vince. Every time he would open his mouth, I was expecting him to pull out a grandma line, like, pay up or I'm going to break your kneecaps and you're not going to make the team, Vince. Or kick a dog. Yeah, it's no fault of Rispoli. I just have grandma so ingrained in my brain now that I can't see that guy in any other role where he's supposed to be a good dude. And just not expect him to just pull a real heel turn at some point. You know who he's playing in this movie? He's playing the John Turturro character, who isn't he as is. lovable and likable as Raspoli is. But in Rounders, John Turturro is the guy. Do you need the truck? Do you need some work? When Damon blows his wad early on in the film, and I think he offers him help later on in the film, too. When Damon finally tells him, no, I can be good at this. I don't need your help anymore. That's the character Raspoli's playing, effectively. Yeah, it's a little bit of a reversal in that way. Yeah, he's the down-to-earth, real-life supporter of him. The way I interacted with his performance is not his fault. It's just the way I am in my history of viewing him. We've talked in, if not glowing terms, at least positive terms about everybody. We haven't even really talked about Greg Kinnear. I like Kinnear in basically everything he does. And occasionally I think he's great. But most of the time, I just think he's solid. That's where I'd put him here. And likewise, the guy that plays, whose name I always forget. Pete? Michael Kelly? Michael Kelly, yeah, from House of Cards. I've seen him in periodic other roles here and there, and I always think he's great. He always brings some really fun energy. Vince is being interviewed in the back alley behind Max's bar because word gets out that he gets the sole invitation out of the public tryout to go actually try out for the Eagles. And they start filming, and just in the background, there's Pete taking a leak in the back alley next to the kegs. And he has to be, like, hustled out. And then Michael Kelly's response to that is, oh, sorry, guys. The way he plays it is great. Down to the football games that he plays, and he gets elbowed to the face, and then he pulls it back by elbowing the dude's car because the ref didn't give a call on the foul before. Michael Kelly's one of those, again, low-key guys that I don't think necessarily will steal a movie. Will always do what he needs to do and do it well. Two years before this, he was in Dawn of the Dead, so the remake. Was he? And I would prefer to watch the remake to the original. The original is just so disgusting that puts me off of noodles, for example, and <laughs> macaroni and that kind of thing. I love the remake. I just don't remember him in it. He is the guy who is imprisoning Sarah Pauly, Ving Rhames. I forget the other actors now, but he is the one. You're going to go in a cell and you're going to do what I say. He's CJ. He becomes CJ, part of the crew. yes. And he sacrifices himself at the end. The movie's, what, 17 years old. I don't feel bad about spoiling it. (laughs) I think literally in March, I think it was 17 years. So almost literally 17 years ago it came out. But he sacrifices himself to save the rest of them. I think he's really good in that film. And I saw it again not that long ago. All the actors are pretty solid in that movie. It's not really an acting movie, but I think he stands out a lot. You mentioned House of Cards, of course. But the scene in this movie that I remember the best was him sitting down with Vince and talking about not being supportive of Andrew, 
who we never meet because he went to Vietnam. And I don't recall right now if this is made clear, but it's at least suggested that Andrew didn't come back. And he wishes he'd been supportive of Andrew. So now he's going to be supportive of Vince with something that's obviously far less important than going off to war. I had forgotten that scene, but now you mention it, there's a moment when Vince calls Tommy because Vince's car throughout this movie is breaking down. The battery is all messed up. So he's constantly getting jumps from people. So he calls Tommy to the parking lot of, I assume, the stadium to jump his car. And it's all a ploy just because he wants to tell Tommy for the first time that he made the team. He wants Tommy to be the first one to know. And Tommy's reaction when he finds out is to say, this is bigger than when Blank got the Bronze Star in Nam. I can't remember what character's name he cites in that because I wasn't paying too much attention to that particular line at the moment. But now that you mentioned this conversation with Pete earlier, I wonder if it was. This is bigger than when Andrew got the Bronze Star in Nam, which would imply that he came back, but that maybe he was just disassociated with the previous group of friends because, I don't know, they didn't agree with Vietnam or that just... PTSD. PTSD, maybe. It could be like John Savage in The Deer Hunter where he goes off to a veteran's hospital. He just can't be with them anymore. It's not their fault. They want him to be a friend like he always was, but he can't do it. Maybe that's what happened to Andrew. It's could subtle be. because we never meet this guy, but it's so well expressed. We can't forget that in the background of all of this, not that many years before, Vietnam was still going on. We mentioned Rocky happened that same year as so us. They don't mention it, but this is a Rocky or Rudy surrogate. And that movie came out around the time, maybe a little bit later than this is set. Well, then again, this is a fall time of year, 76 fall when football is going on. And I think that's when Rocky came out. And then Vietnam, not that far removed. So there's all these nice little subtle undercurrents going on. And getting back to Kinnear for one more minute here, Bev and I covered him very recently, just last month in Little Miss Sunshine, the same year as this. So Wahlberg does The Departed, which Bev and I will cover fairly soon in the Top Runner Project. And Wahlberg's in that, great role for him there. And then Kinnear, the same year as this, is in The Competitor, one of the competitors for Best Picture against The Departed, Little Miss Sunshine, where I think Kinnear's quite good. But he's also in the Bad News Bears remake, which I guess we'll probably do one of these days, or if not the original, then we'll do that one. That's the Billy Bob Thornton version of that. The fact that he doesn't stand out is probably for the best. He plays Vermeil quite well. I looked up the way the guy looks. Similar enough looking, the hairstyle is important, of course, just like Kurt Russell in Miracle. The hairstyle is probably the most important thing as far as what you're going to look like <laughs> to capture the character. But they have enough screen time together, Kinnear and Wahlberg, not a ton. That's one of the things about this movie I don't love, but I guess it's because they have a short sports movie for the most part that we don't really ever really meet the Eagles players that much. We get to know a little bit about Denny Franks, Stink Fisher plays him, like we said. But we don't really meet the other players that much. We don't really see that much game action. It's almost all special teams, the movie. Like I said before, this is almost all about the kicking because that's what Vince does. And that's fine. They focus it that way. But that's maybe why Kinnear is short change too because we see him build the team up. But then once we do see some game action later on, it's almost like he doesn't matter anymore. He has screen time, but... He doesn't really need to be there anymore. I felt the same way. It's not like I was crushed by lack of Kinnear in this movie, because as important as Dick Vermeil's presence is in the grand scheme of things, he really is facilitating Vince's story through all of this, and he does what he needs to do. I think you're right. And you're not wrong in saying that we don't get to know the players very much either. We get to know basically one or two almost antagonists amongst the players, like TJ, I think, and Samson, the guy that... Vince Papali is actually directly competing against for a spot on the team. You get to right, know them a little bit, mostly because they're just vets who are a little bit antagonistic towards the idea of like a 30-year-old rookie walking on and taking their spot on the team. And I wouldn't blame them. If I'm a veteran on this team, entitlement or not, 
Vince taking a spot on the roster means I'm unemployed. Yeah, I'm not going to be rooting for Vince either. I might be a little bit pissed off towards him too. I don't really need a whole lot more, given what the story that this movie is trying to tell anyway, I didn't need a whole lot more out of the players that he was playing against to contrast that against Rudy, where we got some of those players that were just so over-the-top anti-Rudy for reasons, I guess. And then too supportive. Yeah. And then they care too much about this mediocre player who gets to play one player. I guess it's two plays. They are two against him, then they're two for him. I wish that we had seen a little bit more actual game action in this. You're absolutely right in that, because we only really get two games worth of clips, right? The first game that Vince plays in, and then the home opener where he has his triumphant, if fictionalized moment, and that's it. Otherwise, it's all just basically practice and tryouts, which how often, again, do I complain about fictionalizing reality for the sake of drama? But I was trying to think of how else would you have kind of a triumphant end of the movie for Vince? And we agree, I think, that just him being on the field and making the team, he's already triumphed. But for the sake of movie drama, I struggle to think of how else you could have done it. So, okay, it makes sense, guys. You give him that fictionalized touchdown and that caps the movie. I'll give you that one. I did wish for a little bit more game action, I have to admit. Well, yeah, there's not a ton of sports action. When we've done football movies, I think for the most part, they've been done right. We've seen some bad baseball. But I think for the most part, the football has been done right in the football movies. This feels pretty authentic and it's solid. But it's all about Vince. And Wahlberg also, of course, looks like an athlete. He's too in shape for the 70s. But we see that all the time now. You talked about, I think, on Remember the Titans, that those guys are all so cut and everything when they're portraying players from many years before who are supposed to be about 10 years younger than they actually are. You're just going to get that from the modern era because every guy has to be in perfect shape. And as I said, Wahlberg's probably in fighter shape for the fighter that he thought maybe would be made before it was. So that's why he walks around and think, oh my God, he is my height. But he looks like he could take down Schwarzenegger at Schwarzenegger's best (laughs) with those muscles and everything. My God. But yeah, the football action, when it's on the field, feels pretty authentic. And Wahlberg fits in pretty well. Not a place kicker, unfortunately. But so be it. As far as the score factor, you got bags. Bags. But also Paige Turco, Kinnear, and Wahlberg for the ladies. It's also a very chaste movie, though. But that's Disney for you. It is, yeah. I keep on mentioning Glory Road, which we're going to cover in a few weeks. And that's Josh... Why am I forgetting his name? Lucas, also good-looking guy. A lot of good-looking young actors with him in that. I'm sure that's the exact same thing. Very chaste movie. And as far as the score, I'm going to do what the critics did as an average. They said 6.5. I'll give it a 6.5. The exact same number as the Rotten Tomatoes critical average was. What about you? This is not a particularly scorable movie. Super in shape and attractive actors in it aside. And listen, the 1970s hair does not help the scorability of this movie either. (laughs) That was some rough, (laughs) rough hairstyling in this movie. For the score of the movie itself, I think I liked it a little bit more than you did. I do wish that there were moments in it that were a little less dour, but I cut it some slack because I appreciate what life was like in Philly in the 70s, in the manufacturing downturns and stuff like that. I'd be more like a seven or a seven and a half, I think even. I'm shocked that I wasn't enticed to see it back in the day. I have to assume that Disney just failed in the way that they advertised this movie because it was not at all what I thought it was going to be going in. They must have failed because look how little money they made off a movie that has good actors and it's a pretty solid story and the critics were on its side at the time. And a summer movie, yeah, it's buried in August, but there's not a lot of other things to compete with in August. So this should have by default done better than it did. It didn't fail, but Disney is great at marketing, but every once in a while they just don't seem to put everything they got into it. They did the rookie too. 
I don't know if that succeeded. I don't look up those numbers. That's something we'll probably cover one day because that's also in Disney+. Plus. Absolutely feel-good movie about a second-chance kind of thing. There's almost always a Disney movie every couple of years at least that's pretty reputable. But they don't necessarily really break out as big hits either. I looked up some Glory Road numbers to compare and it didn't really succeed either. This was a tough year despite the fact they produced two pretty good chased <laughs> well, no swearing no blood no violence sports movies it is funny that they make pains to show in a couple of sequences the no pads no holds barred full contact football in a movie where they also make pains not to really show the consequences of that like you get mark Wahlberg wincing and bending over but you never see what would almost certainly be split scalps and shattered bones and all that it was a cute moment when he switches up his pads during the tryout period because he's given these special teams bulky pads, so he's going to take a lot of punishment. But he's like, I can't run in these. And he takes the quarterback's pads, and you see the equipment manager say, you're going to get killed wearing those. I'm not going to be here long enough for the matter anyway, right? And then <laughs> you get him wrapping his ribs in the tensor bandages. He's getting his butt kicked a little bit later in the movie, so he's wrapping himself. The one last thing I wanted to point out in this movie, because I was impressed by it, and I am a sucker for this era of music, but I loved the soundtrack. Appropriate, too, because we talked about that in some of the podcasts, including on Blue Chips, where it seemed to be just that William Friedkin wanted to play music he liked. Yeah, Nick Nolte's character maybe listens to that music, but you're basically talking about rap generation people or hip-hop generation characters in your movie on Blue Chips. Right. This movie is set in the 70s, so if you're going to play 70s hits... Do it in a 70s movie. So I agree with you on that. And the way that they utilized it, if not subtle, they didn't bombastically pound you in the face with pump up music at various points. You had Free Ride and not Jefferson Airplane, but Grand Funk Railroad mixed in there. You had Bachman Turner Overdrive at various points. It was a great mixed bag of 70s vibes, rock music that I just thought along with the tone and tenor of the performances to hammer home what it felt like in South Philly in the 70s. Seely Dam is also in here. Rod Stewart. I'm looking at the soundtrack listing right now. Jackson Brown. Ted Nugent. In the moment, I wasn't singing them, but after I was. And you realize, yeah, it grounds you in the 70s. We don't often talk about soundtracks except for negative reasons, like you mentioned. But this is a movie where I wanted to point it out just for job well done, guys. Yeah, tip your hat. Well, we barely mentioned Erickson Core, but he is the director and shot the movie. I think he did a very solid job. You liked the movie a little bit more than me, but we're basically in the same place. A pleasant surprise, too, because yeah. the main reason we chose it, because we're leading to Super Bowl Sunday in a couple of days, and because it was free. Well, we pay for Disney Plus. It's not free. But <laughs> Stop it was emphasizing our cheapness, Ryan. <laughs> We've paid for movies recently, as have Bev and I, and I resent it. <laughs> I will always resent it. But anyway, yes, he and Brad Gann, both of them in their debut. This is the first movie that Core ever directed. Did the Point Break remake. We'll gloss over that. Movie didn't succeed, but it was enjoyable. And if you haven't seen it, fans, or listen to us for some reason, then watch it because you might get something out of it. I just wish Wahlberg, and it's tough because the way they paint him, but had a little bit more fun. But that's Wahlberg for you. Not really a fun actor. I get it, though. I get what you're saying there. So enjoy the Super Bowl on Sunday. I haven't watched the big game in decades, and I won't be watching this year either. But don't let me rain on your concussion. I mean parade. <laughs> and we were so positive up until this point. Why did football happen as normal this year? It seemed pretty normal, especially college football. COVID, guys, COVID, pandemic. Anyway, in two weeks, we'll follow Invincible with Invictus. I-N-V, I-N-V, I-N-V-I, in fact. As we talk about our first and probably our last rugby movie. So does this mean that if we follow the same logic of Invincible being so named, at least in part because the lead character's name is Vince, so is the lead character in this movie going to be Victu? I've never seen Invictus either. <laughs> 
I'm expecting this, and if it's not the case, Ryan, I'm going to be very upset with you. Well, Nelson Mandela, Morgan Freeman plays him, is the lead. No Vic Du there. And Matt Damon is the other lead. I don't remember what his name is, but it's probably not Vic Du. Well, at the very least, can we expect Matt Damon to bust out some Jason Bourne moves? Rugby's a rough sport, so... While I would have been surprised to see him just suplex somebody at the poker table in rounders, I will be, again, very upset if he doesn't do some takedown antics and Invictus. The last Born movie was 2007, so he would have been right in that frame of mind and wanted to get that out of him. So, I will make a prediction that will be inaccurate, but I will make it anyway. Yes, he will do some Born moves on those fellow rugby players. Excellent. And they will win. <laughs> All right, so I'm on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. And you can find our podcast anywhere you like to look for podcasts. Please subscribe to us. Tell us what you think. Comment, rate us, all that kind of stuff, because it doesn't cost you anything. Take you no time at all to do it. Take your easy, Vince, and hold on to that playbook for 41 games. You'll be a special teams captain one day.